Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Good morning, you guys. How are you doing today? My name is James. I'm a member here at DR. And Tim told me to uh, rush up there before the song finishes because uh, sometimes Beth forgets to pray for us. So. Um, really, really... Um, Grateful that I get a chance to open God's word with you today. Really grateful that uh, I get a chance to teach because it's always an opportunity for God to teach me first and God to address me. And so today, so today I want to talk, um, I want us to talk together about weakness. I want to talk about weakness and how God's grace comes to us in our weakness. I want to talk with you guys about how God's strength and God's power is made manifest, is, is displayed, is shown off in and through and despite our weaknesses. And I specifically want to look at uh, the life of a guy named Paul. Last week, Tony, the dancer, um, talked about the grace of God in the life of a guy named Peter, who was just a dude, you know what I mean? Garden variety sinner like the rest of us. And um, I want to look specifically at Paul's, a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. This is, there's two letters that he wrote to this church, and this is the second one, it's 2 Corinthians. And I want us to look at Paul's ministry and his life as an example to us, but I want us to try to avoid two errors. And the first error, I think, is this, is that we look in this book, and we look at the, the lives of the characters in this book, and we look at them as though there's some ancient artifact that we have to dust off or that we just uh, analyze and observe like from a great, great distance. Well, the the other error is that we look at these people and we say, I could never measure up to that. I don't want us to see Paul as some outstanding personality that's just unique because he's not. Um... The fact is that, I mean, we're looking at Paul's life, but we could easily, we could talk about God's grace and our weakness and God's strength and our weakness. We could look at the lives of just about anybody in Scripture. That you can look at almost any, any of the players in this drama, any of the characters in this story, and you could see a portrait of God's grace through the midst of weak, frail, sinful people like you and me. You could see it in the life of Adam, of Eve, of Noah, of Abraham, of Sarah, of Jacob, of Joseph, of Leah, of the list goes on and on and on. Ruth, Naomi, Moses, Gideon, Jael, all these people, all the prophets, all the apostles. And I want you to see that there's a pattern developing here is a pattern that climaxes in Jesus Christ. That what God says he's going to rescue the world when he's sending his son to the earth, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, he comes in the form of a man through the womb of a pregnant teenager. That God's power and strength and grace is made manifest in weakness. This is not unique 
to some guy who lived thousands of years ago. This is the way that God works in the lives of his people, in my life and in yours. So, um, there's, a, there's another reason why I think this is a timely subject. If it's in here, it's relevant. That's my conviction. But beyond that, I think, too, that this, when we talk about weakness, it runs so hard against the grain of our culture because we have this, this deep-seated sense of self-sufficiency, of pride, and of autonomy that everyone says, I'm my own person, and I don't need help from anyone, and I'm the captain of my destiny, I, I'm the master of my fate, and I don't need any help from you, much less help from God. Um, I heard a story, I was talking to a pastor in a bar one time, I don't know what he was doing at a bar, but if he's a pastor, but <laughs> we were talking, and, uh, and he, he passes a church out in Fitchburg, and he, every Sunday morning early on, that he, he walks around the neighborhood, and he just talks to people who are outside, and, and there's one guy in his driveway, and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm so-and-so, and, and I pastor a church down the street, and I just want to let you know that we're here, and you're welcome, and if there's any way we can help you or serve you, uh, let us know. And this guy's out washing his boat in like his, you know, 4,000 foot square home. And he's like, look at my boat. Look at my house. Do you think I need any help from you? And that's a bold statement. That's rude. This guy's probably annoyed. I don't know if he thought he was like going to hit him up for money or something like that. But there's this, there's this deep-seated notion, right? This pride, this self-sufficiency. That's deep in our culture. And if we're not careful, we carry that too. We bring that into the church with us. And we look at the gospel through that lens. And, and, and we need to be challenged on that. We need to be confronted. We need to be renewed in our thinking. Some of the way you see this is like, I'll give you an example. People aren't into weakness, right? They're into wellness in this culture. They're into like organic quinoa and like free-range everything. And like weird hippie tea that you have to ferment for like 30 days or something. <laughs> I'd never drink that stuff if my life depended on it. I don't even know how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to try. Okay, nutrition is not bad, right? But there comes a point where everyone is so big into health and just wellness and just being an optimum strength. And then anyone who's sick or frail is like cut off. You got talk show gurus talking about how you can have the best life or the happiest marriage, or you got the doctors, everyone's self-diagnosing themselves. You got kids, 13-year-old kids walking around with like t-shirts talking about how much swag they have. And it's to me like I'm I'm dumbfounded because when I see them, they're getting on the bus. I'm like, if you ride the bus, your swag level is like seriously diminished. You got the Nike shirts that like I'm so, you know, like I'm so hard or I do it so fly or whatever. I, I don't know. But the fact is this, this, and I'm not trying to just tell jokes. The, the whole point is this. When, um, when we talk about the grace of God, when we talk about grace as our utter dependence upon God, when we talk about the grace of God is a gift that we have not earned. When we talk about grace as charity that we have not merited, 
we talk about salvation as an accomplishment that we have not achieved, nor could we. When we say to people that you have a desperate need and nothing you can do will provide for it, only God can give it to you. People get nervous. That goes against where they're coming from. When, when you tell them that you, we, all people desperately need to be reconciled to God and that there's no way we can earn his love, there's, there's nothing we can do to, to merit his favor, there's nothing we can do to pull ourselves up and put us in a right relationship with God. It only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ as a gift, as a free gift of grace, as a sheer act of charity. That's offensive to people. That's confronting them. And, and it's only, it's only when we come to the end of ourselves, when we realize that we are beyond our capacity, we are out of our depths, we are at the end of our rope, it's precisely there. In fact, it's only there that we find grace when we are beyond ourselves, when we're spent. Um, and Paul, Paul's a great example of this. He is a man who was in desperate need of grace. Um, and this letter, 2 Corinthians, is, is just, the whole Bible is filled with this theme, but 2 Corinthians is where it gets, it gets super explicit. And so I'm just give you just a super quick introduction to 2 Corinthians. First, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. When I say that, I have, a, I have a deep fear that some of you hear those words and you're like, I have no idea what that means. You might, I might as well be speaking Latin. Apostle is a fancy word that means he was sent out by Jesus Christ. And Gentiles means people who aren't Jewish. So Jesus came to the people of Israel. He preached. He did ministry. And after his death, he sent out Paul. He stopped Paul in his tracks. He turned him from what he was formerly doing Paul's former line of work was trying to stomp the church out of existence, rounding up Christians, taking them to prison, probably getting their house and their property confiscated, and uh, holding guys' coats when they would gang up together to throw rocks at Christians. Not like playground pea gravel throwing rocks, like real boulders and stuff. So Jesus Christ confronts Paul, turns him around, and says, I'm sending you out to people who aren't like you, you're going outside of your racial group. You're going outside of your social, your, your social class. And you're going to plant churches. You're going to carry this message to the ends of the earth. And so Paul would go out. He would start churches. He would preach the gospel. He would, people would get converted. And, and he would try to develop leadership and build churches. And he would plant a church. And he would move on to another city and do the same thing. And he would return. And he would write to them. And he loved them. He, he looked at them as like a father looks at his children. You know, he's like, they, these were his babies, and he, he felt responsible for them. And so that meant sometimes he had to wrestle with them. You know, like you have children, and you're going to have wrestling with them because they think they know what's best. They're easily led astray, and if you love them, you're going to try and redirect them. So what happens as we're reading, what's in the background as we're reading 2 Corinthians is you got these folks coming into the church that are like, Paul calls them super apostles. 
They are super duper polished. These guys are like professional orators. They're super skilled in public speaking. They got, they got these letters of recommendation that they bring that I, I, mean, I don't know if that's like a note from mom or if that's like, if it's a note from other, you know, like the, the endorsements you'll have on the back of the book. Like so-and-so says, I'm a really great dude. And so-and-so says, I'm a really great guy. So they, and they're, they're super, they seem super strong and confident. They have this imposing persona, you know? And they're, they're casting doubt on Paul. And they're saying, look at this guy. Man, this guy used to persecute the church. What kind of apostle is he? He's always getting arrested and thrown into jail. This guy's homeless, you know? He comes to you and he, he works with his hands as a craftsman. That's not honorable. What kind of apostle does that? So Paul ends up having to defend himself, and I think it's really interesting the way he does. The way he does, it, uh, and it just showcases God's grace. Paul can say a lot of things to defend himself, but what he does is he lifts up God's grace. So let's, let's take a look at it. The first way he introduces this to us is by introducing us to the God who brings comfort in our affliction and our sorrow. So um, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, please open it up to 2 Corinthians. So if you go to the middle and like flip right past the Gospels, it's uh, right after 1 Corinthians. Um, here we go. We're going to start in chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 3 all the way through verse 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we are able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted through us, through the prayer, uh, the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So, as we read this, I want us to ask ourselves a few questions. How do we respond to suffering? Does it strengthen our faith? Hardship and tragedy, does it strengthen our faith? Or does it throw it into question? Do we see it as a mark that our faith is authentic? That we're actually following Jesus who carried a cross? That we're actually following in the example of, of an apostle who, who abundantly shared in Christ's sufferings? Or do we see it as a sign that God's not paying attention to us? 
that God's asleep at the wheel, that he doesn't know what he's doing. He's not working in my life. Do we even have suffering in our lives? Or if we we done our best to, to throw up every barrier we can muster to try and keep hardships at bay? Do we see it as an occasion to experience the comfort that only Christ can provide? Or do we use it as an occasion to complain and grumble and get cynical and bitter? Now, I don't want to diminish anyone's suffering in any way as being hard and difficult because and, Paul doesn't put, he doesn't put a rosy tint on any of this. He confesses. He says, man, I was so afflicted that I despaired of life itself. That's super honest. That's real vulnerable. And here's where he serves in his example to us. It's not just his suffering that exposes weakness. It's our suffering too. It's our trials. It's our hardships that we go through that they expose our weakness, our frailty. They show us that, that our life in this world is like a, we're like a, a fragile clock that's winding down and that the parts are wearing out. And it's right here. It's right here that God meets us with grace when we realize that we're, we're at the end of ourselves. We're at the end of our rope. And why is this? It's to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us. He will deliver us. He will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. God doesn't want us to go through life thinking that he can't use our suffering and our hardship and our trials and our difficulties. He doesn't want us suffering without hope. And not hope that it might get better, that we might be able to turn it around with our own ingenuity, with our own resources. God will use pain and grief in our lives to bring us to repentance, to turn us from placing our confidence and our trust in ourselves to himself who raises the dead. He will grow us in sympathy and compassion. The, the letter to the Hebrews said that Jesus Christ is a sympathetic high priest because he suffered like we do. He faced temptation just like we do. He's not, he's not unrelatable. He knows what we're going through. He's sympathetic. And God will use these same things to grow us in sympathy so that the comfort we experience, it doesn't just stop with us. That we can, in turn, we might be able to comfort people who are in any type of affliction. And God is able to encourage other people when they see us. When they see us in the midst of trials and difficulties. When they see the comfort and the grace that we experience and they see us placing more trust in what God says than what our eyes can see. When we, when we have more faith in God's word than how things appear, when we've put more stock in what is unseen than what is seen, and it's not, that's where people see that it's not just, we're just not naturally optimistic people. We're not naive. We're not just 
positive thinkers. But they see someone who's different, who, who meets this stuff, this, this trials and hardships in a different way. And you can't help to catch on to that. And Paul talks about that as like spreading the aroma, spreading the fragrance of Christ. In chapter 2, in verse 14, he talks about, uh, but thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul admits he's not competent on his own. Nobody is. He's not qualified to do this stuff. Only Christ makes him qualified. And with the way he talks about what he's doing and, and how, we, how we spread this aroma of Christ, he uses this, this, this imagery of like a procession, a victory parade. Some of you guys have seen the videos of like, you know, back when uh, all the soldiers came back from World War II and they walked through the streets of New York and people were throwing confetti and they were riding in cars and you see like, you know what I'm saying, all those like, Soldiers would get off the plane and like women would just run up and kiss them and stuff. And it was like a huge celebration. They were celebrating a victory, celebrating a triumph. Maybe a handful of you guys uh, may, like saw it firsthand. I don't know. Uh, but here's the thing. This is what Paul is explaining. He's talking about the way Christ is leading him in his ministry. And he's saying Christ is up front. He's the conquering king. He's the one in charge. He's the triumphant one. And I'm in the back, like a captive, like one who's been conquered, like a prisoner of war. And in the ancient Roman world, when they would, they would march these processions down the street, every temple that was lined up along the street would burn incense. And so you'd have this thick aroma in the air and like this noseful of this, this really pungent, strong, overpowering smell. And Paul says his ministry is like that. And for us too, God wants our lives to smell like grace. You know, when you're, when you're with someone, like if you're out doing something, if you're at someone's bonfire, you come home, you smell like fire, you go to a cigar bar, hypothetically, and you come back, you smell like smoke, you know? You work in the field, you smell like someone who's been working in the field all day. God wants us to smell like the grace of Jesus Christ. He wants people to, to get a whiff of Jesus on us. And, and whether or not people like it or they don't, some people, they come, in, they come into contact with that and they're like, man, that smells really good. What are you wearing? And other people, they're like, hey, man, you need, you need a shower. Good God, you stink. That Jesus mumbo jumbo, I hate that stuff. But either way, regardless of how people respond, God wants through us that people would, would come into contact with those, who, those of us who, at the bottom core level, the foundation of our lives, is not based on our own power and strength. It's not based on our own wisdom, our own achievements, our own accomplishments, our own self-centeredness but it's based and founded upon, instead, the grace of Jesus Christ. 
the restorative, empowering, transforming grace of the Lord Jesus. This is where Paul serves us as an example because it shows us, when we look at his life, he says that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and he says that I am the chief, I'm the worst. And this is an example to other people. Man, if, if he can receive the grace of God, nobody's life is too far gone to be, to be captured by grace. And we look at all the stuff that he goes through, the trials, the hardships he faces, the sorrow he experiences, and we say there's no sorrow that the gospel does not bring hope to. There's no depth of suffering that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't break through to. So that's good news. But my question is why? Why does God's grace and power, why does it have to come through my weakness, my frailty, my brokenness? If God's making a point to show off his grace and his power, then why can't it just be easier? Why can't it just come naturally? Why can't it just be more, a more pleasant experience? Here's another kind of question. Think about it. If God's really meaning to put his grace on display and show it off, what kind of, what kind of lives and what kind of people is he going to use? How's he going to do that? If God really wants to show his strength, the strength that can't come from no place else, that we can't muster up, what kind of people's lives is he going to do that through? Let's go back to Paul's example. Let's go see if, if he gives us an answer, okay? Remember that the folks that are criticizing him, the folks that are calling his ministry and his life into question, these guys are impressive. They're super good, skilled public speakers. They're flashy. Their persona is imposing. They come highly recommended. And so they're strong in their speech, and they're strong in their, their pedigree and their qualifications. They're strongly recommended. And they're strong in their personality. And so when Paul makes his defense, when he defends himself in his ministry, he's not just defending himself. He, this is really about the character of the gospel. This is about a question of, does God only show grace to people who look like they've got it all together? Does God only work in the lives of people that seem powerful and strong and well-qualified? Is that the evidence of grace in a Christian's life, that you would, you would meet some measure of success that the world defines? Is that, is that it? Is that what shows that you've got it? There are some people who teach that it's a dangerous heresy. It is. What is it that should define a Christian's life? What is characteristic about grace in a Christian's life? What should a Christian place their confidence in? What are the things that we might boast about or brag about or give as our defense? Let's hear how Paul makes his defense. Back to 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 12 now. And this is like towards the end of his letter. Starting in verse 5 all the way to verse 10. But on my own behalf... I will not boast 
except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think of me uh, more than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to tell you that there are people that we meet that we know that they will admit no need of grace. People who portray an image and they put on their best to try and convince whoever, their neighbors, their family, their relatives, that they have it all together. People who by appearances have no need for grace. Based on just what you see about them, they seem to have everything nailed down. They don't need anything from anyone and certainly not mercy and forgiveness from God. But God sees what is unseen. He measures differently than how things appear. He measures the heart. And that is the common denominator. Because our hearts are unfaithful to God. They are quick to give the esteem and the affection that only God is worthy of to a thousand other things. They're called idols. Our, our hearts are constantly placing their trust and their confidence where it doesn't belong. And when we know our weakness, when we know our frailty, when we stop denying our utter neediness, that's when we find grace. And the truth is that it's not until we are there that we receive grace. God takes us there. That's part of his mercy. That's part of his grace. And so when we see, you know, the things that mark Paul's life as an apostle, hardships, persecution, calamity, insults, weakness, and Jesus' words to him is like, this, what you're going through, this is exactly where I'm going to show you that my grace is enough. Despite how things look, despite how things appear, this is where I'm going to show that my power is working itself out perfectly, exactly like it's supposed to. Now, this is contrary to how most people define success and power. And it's even contrary to our intuition. But when I look at this, it's helpful to me, and I hope it's helpful to you. And this is what I want to drive, you, drive home. 
But this makes sense of our experience. Because we, we, we come into the church and we hear this message about this gracious, wonderful, merciful God. This God who sent his son to die for our sins and who sends his spirit to, to give us new life, to fill us with the love of God, to empower us. And we hear that and we, we believe that is good news and it is. And then our experience doesn't, there's like a disconnect. Our experience is that we still struggle. We still fight sin and temptation. We still, we still get bent out of shape over petty things and we harbor bitterness. And we're like, what's going on? And the fact of the matter is, it's in our weaknesses. This is the way God is working out his grace. And so, we don't, there's no need to say in a struggle with the question, man, if God has really saved me, why, why do I still struggle? If, if, if the Bible's true and God has done everything he said he's going to do, then why isn't it just easy? Look at what Paul says marks his life out as an apostle, as an authentic apostle and not a phony, not a counterfeit, not an imposter. Hardships, trials, sufferings, always caring about in his body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in us. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ so that through Christ we might share in comfort too. This is not just how Paul works. Or this, I'm sorry, this is not just how God works in the life of Paul. This is not unique to someone who is an apostle. That's how God works in the lives of all his people. It's how God works in the life of the church. The power of God's grace to transform us. The way his strength is put on display and, and shown off in our lives is through our weakness. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Now, you might say, that's fine. Why do I care? What does it matter? Why do I need to hear this? I believe that God, through the gospel, is trying to shift our vision, shift our focus away from how things seem, how they look, how they appear, to what's going on beneath the surface. You know, like, when someone believes in the gospel, there's oftentimes not a huge miracle. Though the Bible says that there's a new creation, there's rebirth, there's new life. That's in the heart. That's hidden. That's something you can't see. It's not always apparent on the surface. So when we come together into the church, you know, from a worldly perspective, the church is weak. I don't care, I mean, I don't care how, how smoking of a band you have, how flashy a preacher you have, I don't care what kind of cathedral you have, if you got neon lights and smoke machines, it don't matter. We're, it's still full of weak, broken, sinful people, right? Unimpressive, unqualified, garden variety sinners like me and you. The world looks in on this and all they can see is that and they say, man, how can that be God's people? It looks foolish. 
we, we rehearse this story, this same story, this gospel story, week after week, again and again and again. We cling to it as for life. With all its strangeness, with all its ancientness, with all its foreignness, in the world, they're like, you must be kidding me. How can you believe that? How can you believe that story is the story of all stories? You see Jesus nailed to a cross, dying. And the world looks on and they say, man, how can that be the Savior of the world? You, re- you, you read it in the Gospels. Jesus is hanging on the cross and there's a crowd down beneath. And they're like, man, that guy said he was going to save us. He can't even save himself. The church appears as a joke. The gospel appears as foolishness, and Jesus appears as one who just who died in weakness and in shame. And if all we if all we can do is trust what we can see and how things appear and how they look, that's gonna be the end of the story for us. But God, through the gospel, is trying to shift our focus away from how things look, from how they seem to how they really are, from, what's, from what is seen to what is unseen, from what appearances are to what's really at the heart, from what's seen and temporary to what's unseen and eternal. And so the band's going to come back up. We're going to worship some more. We're going to sing God's praises. We're going to confess his goodness despite how things seem. One of the ways... We do this is by taking communion. Uh, Paul says that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What we see is a cracker and some juice. That's really weak. That's humble. That is extremely unimpressive. It's not even real bread. It's not even real wine. It's very common. But God is pleased to use what is common and what is unimpressive and what is humble and weak to show his grace and his strength. He does this so that no one can boast in his presence. That if we boast, if we brag, if we have anything to have confidence in, it's the Lord alone and not ourselves. So what is seen is the bread and the juice. But what is unseen and what God is focusing our eyes on and shifting our vision to is the death of Christ for our sins and his return to put all things right. So when we come up, we we take communion, I ask that you, uh, you let God speak that to you. Join me in prayer and we'll worship some more. God, we are so thankful that that you choose to show grace and mercy and power and strength to us who are weak and needy and uh, undeserving, God. 
We have no claim upon your love. We have no claim on your favor or your mercy. But God, you are, you are pleased to dwell in power in the lives of weak and broken people. God, I, I pray that you would teach us and show us places that we're, where we've tried to put up fronts and put up a facade to cover our weakness. God, I pray that through the gospel, you would expose that and you would heal that, God, and you would, you would help us to confess our sins before you and seek your, your mercy, seek your grace, seek your provision, Lord. Help your people as they call out in a time of need. All God's people said, amen. amen.